please feel free to open your Bibles, if you have them with you, to Ephesians 3, which is where we'll be uh, today, <clears throat> and um, the book of Ephesians. Uh, and as we look to God's Word, if you would, uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we come because your Word is what we need. We need to hear truth, and truth transforms our thinking. And Lord, we need to know how things really are and what you've really called us to be and how you've called us to live, Lord. And so we ask that you would engage us to your higher thoughts, engage us with them today through your word and help us to learn them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're in a series uh, titled The Church, A Spiritual Community. We're in part three of that series. And um, the subtitle for this message is A Subversive Community. The church is a subversive community. And I think that needs some explaining, so bear with me as we walk through this text. But we're going to begin by reading in Ephesians chapter 3 and the paragraph or section we're going to read, verse 7 and following. Uh, Paul is writing and he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which, um, for, <clears throat> which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in Him, and through faith in Him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Gilbert Hyatt said anyone who reads the Bible and isn't puzzled at least half the time doesn't have his mind on what he is doing. I think he might be right. Um, <clears throat> our text today has always been one of those that puzzles me when I read it. And yet it, it draws me in. It draws me in because when I read it, I, I think, you know, this puzzles me, but there's something about it. I, I think this, verse 10 in particular, is huge. I, I think that whatever it is this is saying might be one of the most significant things said in the entire New Testament. There's just something about it that draws me in. Not that it says something different than the rest of the New Testament. I think it, it captures one of the big key themes of the New Testament and puts it in a verse. If only we can open it up and grasp what it's saying to us. It tells us what so much of the New Testament is about, I think. It's, it's huge. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul is calling us to a radical subversiveness. Not against earthly governments, but against earthly values. Against the idea that you are the center of the universe, that the greatest good is for you to be happy or for you to reach 
your greatest potential. Uh, against the idea that, the greatness, that, that greatness is experienced by those at the head of the table, those who get greeted rather than ignored in the marketplace, those who get invited to all the important events, those who get called rabbi, teacher, or pastor, against the idea that wealth and power equals greatness. In the context of the rest of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul in verse 10 declares that the goal of the gospel preached and made known is the church walking out life together under a value system marked by the cross, so much so that we become a subversive agency displaying the power and wisdom of our God and King before the rulers and authorities of the spiritual forces of darkness in the fallen world. Now you might be thinking to yourself, oh, that's in verse 10? <laughs> yes, it is. But I, I'll need some time to explain that. So if you'll give me a few minutes here, maybe we can explain that from the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Are we, are we Gulf Coast Community Church? Are, are we the church in general in the, 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 the world today? Are we that new kind of community leading a radically new kind of life? Are we that? It's not difficult to get people uh, each of each generation, every, every new generation coming up. It's not difficult to get them stirred up over being radical. Young people want something radical to be a part of. It's kind of part of the nature of, of being young. The question is, what are we going to be radical for? No, no doubt Jesus wants us to be radical. He calls us. His calls are, are really, you've got to love me more than, than father or mother or family. I mean, you, that's a radical call. But radical for what? See, that's the, that's the question we have to answer. If we make it about giving stuff up or going somewhere exotic or starting a world-changing nonprofit organization that's going to make a difference in the world, in world hunger or in, in, in the environment or whatever, Things that, that we can control, yes, but people will sign up for that. People want to do something great. But is that what Jesus called us to? Is that the radical that Jesus had in mind? I suggest it is not. It may be one step better than making it about whether or not you wear makeup, homeschool, or drink and smoke, but they still turn the purposes of God into things we can control. Things that we can be seen as great for. Look what we did. Jesus calls us to a form of discipleship that goes much deeper than even those things. One in which your greatest fear will not be whether or not you're willing to share your faith, but whether or not you're willing to live it. One in which you come to realize that the greatest challenge of discipleship is, is not gaining adherents who profess the name of Christ, but adherents to the teaching of Christ. And there's a world of difference. Many will call, Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say. So let's begin examining Ephesians 3.10. And we're going to look at it under three headings. The first is a new community. First, by the way, the first two are very brief points, and then we're going to move into my main point, which is the third point. Verse 10 again. <clears throat> His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Through the church. 
Paul has just spent a good portion of the letter to the Ephesians defining the church, describing the church, telling us amazing things about the church. So that when we read church here, we need to back read. We need to backfill it with what Paul has been saying about the church. In fact, verse 6 just summarizes what he's been saying for a chapter, over a chapter, uh, most of chapter 2. The mystery, that mystery of Christ which Paul is making known, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. The mystery of Christ is this, that through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs with Israel, members of one body, shares in one promise in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? It means that the boundaries of Israel have been changed. They haven't just been moved. They've been changed, altogether changed. It was defined by genealogy and geography. All the way through the Old Testament, Israel is defined by genealogy and geography. Who were your ancestors and where do you live? This geographical space, the promised land. Now it is defined by proximity to Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are an heir. By proximity to Jesus. Israel has been redefined. In the Old Testament, God promised to regather Israel after the exile. You go through the prophets, the latter prophets. God promised to regather Israel after the exile to Babylon. And, and this had not yet been fulfilled at the time of Christ. Part of it had. The Jews had been brought back. That would be only the Jews. We refer to Jews. We think, well, that's Israel. Well, yes, sort of, but not exactly. Jews referred to the southern two kingdoms. You had two kingdoms in the Old Testament after Solomon. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah, hence the word Jews, and that was consisted of Judah and Benjamin. That's basically one-sixth of all of Israel. The other ten tribes weren't a part of that, and when they regathered after the exile, it was only the Jews that were brought back. The other ten tribes had been lost by then. They were scattered to the nations. And so... The people expected that Messiah would come and somehow regather these people back to the land. That was their hope. The Messiah would restore all things. Ephesians is about how God in Christ is restoring all things, but the all things is much bigger than merely the regathering of the remaining ten tribes. Rather, the all things is all nations. Jew and Gentile, everybody gathered and brought in. Through Christ Jesus. Both Gentile and Jew become members of one body through Jesus Christ. Well, that summary in verse 6 of chapter 3 is really summarizing chapter 2 of Ephesians. For instance, you see it in chapter 2 beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus. See, now it's defined by proximity to Jesus. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You didn't have to move physically. You you became in Christ, therefore you were there. You made a move. It's not geographic in an earthly sense, but it's geographic in a spiritual sense. Proximity to Jesus Christ. 
And then it picks up in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer, speaking to the Ephesians, these Gentile Christians, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets, apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone in him. The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. This, Paul is describing, the church is the messianic community, the regathered people of God, the kingdom of God being gathered and the rebuilding of the temple, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the church. It's all right there. It's like Paul just packed into Ephesians chapter 2 the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises that were looking forward to the Messiah and what he would accomplish. However, if we stop here, as amazing as that is, if we stop here and if we think the greatest thing that happens is that the Gentiles are allowed in, as amazing as that is, we may miss the greater point. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing point, and it is a great point that Paul makes here, but it is, we may miss the greater point. And we'll get to that greater point in a moment, but in order to understand it, first I think we need to, to look at how God is doing something through the church, but answer the question, to whom? The greater point is what God is doing through the church. That, that, that is the greater point. We'll get to that. But first, let's answer the question, to whom is he showing it? To whom is it being displayed? So let's look at that, verse 10 again, under a subversive community. His intent was that now through the church, now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. To who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Before we talk about how the church will make known the manifold wisdom of God, let's consider to whom this manifold wisdom will be displayed. One commentator writes, in Ephesians, or Ephesians 3.10 assigns a lofty and cosmic role to the church. It is the channel by which God's wisdom is demonstrated to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. As before, heavenly realms points not so much to a place as to a spiritual reality. The reality beyond what we see. In the book of Ephesians, it is clear that these rulers... These authorities are not earthly powers that Paul is speaking of, but spiritual entities that stand behind every earthly power structure that is in opposition to God and his ways. Paul comes back to these rulers and authorities in chapter 6, verse 12. He, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul expands on these rulers and authorities there. He describes them a little more descriptively, if you will. In chapter 1, Paul had mentioned them in verse 20 and 21 when he told us that Christ, when he ascended, was seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, but also in the, the one to come. In the ascension... Christ has given power and authority far higher than any power of darkness, any authority of the world's uh, power structures. And now the church is going to put on display the many-colored wisdom of God, the multifaceted wisdom of God to those same powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Wisdom on display that will prove that the authority of Christ Jesus is as Lord over his church is real because the people are transformed. 
Wisdom that will demonstrate that the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to all who believe. Wisdom on display that will demonstrate that the cross accomplished what the law never could. How does God demonstrate his wisdom to spiritual powers? If the audience is spiritual powers, then it begs the question, how will God go about? How does God typically go about displaying his wisdom? Well, let me ask a question. What is the greatest display of the wisdom of God ever? The cross. Is it not? Is it not the cross? The very thing that appears to be foolish to the world is the greatest display of the wisdom of God? You know, the earliest known artist, artistic dis- depiction of the crucifixion is called the Alexamenos Graffito. It was drawn in approximately 200 A.D., and it's not a painting. It's more of a graffiti that was done in plaster, maybe a wall or something of that sort that they've found, and, and it remained intact. Um, it was apparently drawn by somebody mocking a Christian, a particular Christian named Alexamenos. The artist replaced the head in this crucifixion. You see a cross. It's more of a stick figure drawing. You've got an outline of a body. But the head is not the head of a man, but the head of a, of a donkey. Or you could use the shorter single-syllable term. It's got three letters, <laughs> if you prefer. And it has this inscription. Alexamenus worships his God. Alexamenus worships his God. That is the world's perspective of what it means to worship a crucified Lord. What kind of fools are we? We worship an ass for a God. That is their perspective. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 describe how the message of the cross which Paul preached was foolishness to the people who heard it. Except those being saved. But then he goes on to describe another audience in chapter 2. This other audience is not the recipients of the message of the cross. They were the participants in carrying out the crucifixion itself. Pontius Pilate, Herod, the rulers of the Jews, Caiaphas, and and so forth. The, The rulers of the Jews and the rulers of the Romans. And there, Paul speaks of the rulers of this age saying... Had they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul there is is speaking of earthly rulers, though not to the exclusion of the spiritual forces behind them. In Ephesians, he's speaking of spiritual entities themselves. But, But how, to those earthly rulers, did God demonstrate wisdom? He did it through laying down his life on the cross. That's how he demonstrated wisdom. They did not understand it. They even participated in carrying it out, but it defeated them. Had they understood it, had they understood that crucifying this supposed renegade who had seemingly no clue about how to run a rebellion because he wasn't using swords and anything of the like, but laying down his life, had they understood it, they would have understood that in their very action they were sealing their own doom. They were killing the Lord of glory. In Ephesians, Paul describes spiritual attacks on God's people, as we'll see as we we, we get further into chapter 6 and so forth. Assaults which make us carry our cross, through which God's wisdom will once again fool the very powers who assault God's people. And by living according to the gospel, the church will demonstrate that their doom is sealed. 
These spiritual powers think that they're harming the cause of God in the world, but in fact, they're playing right into God's hand as the church displays this wisdom. They come along and they stir up trouble, they stir up strife, they stir up envy. They cause conflicts, they bring all sorts of things to the church, doubts, persecution. But when the church responds according to the wisdom of the cross, we display the wisdom of God and the sure defeat of his enemies. That's what I think Paul is saying in chapter 3, verse 10. Don't worry, I'm about to show you why. It is in this sense that I say the church is a subversive community. Just as Jesus threatened the powers of his day, the Jewish rulers, the Roman powers, so the church, when it demonstrates the wisdom of God, as Paul describes, threatens the spiritual forces of darkness. Just as the demons knew that Jesus' presence and activity meant their doom was near. Remember, the demons, when Jesus showed up, don't make us go into the abyss. Don't cast us into the abyss. Can we go into those pigs? Sure. What do the pigs do? They jump in the abyss. It's inevitable. That's where you're going. Likewise, when we show up living the wisdom of the cross, living in the wisdom of God, when we actually walk as Jesus called us to walk, we demonstrate the failure of every dark force and their utter doom. Paul describes this to the Philippians when he says, that when we stand firm in the gospel, uh, without caving in, it threatens the enemy. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In a manner that matches the gospel. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. When we live the gospel and continue to live worthy of the gospel despite the attacks and the onslaughts, it's a sign that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. See, this is a call to say, yeah, suffer without being afraid. Suffer knowing that the gospel is at work. Suffer knowing that in your suffering, God is conquering evil. And the world says that's not possible. Nobody would, nobody, nobody, nobody would actually do this. And every time we do, the enemy says, uh-oh, we don't have any control over them. We, don't, we, we can't control these people. They don't, they don't follow our lead. They don't listen to what we say is important. There's something that they're living by that's foolish to us. And they don't understand it. And had they known, they would not. But they do because they keep sealing their own doom. Subversive, it means intended to destroy the power or influence of a government or an established belief. Well, I'm not talking about destroying the power of earthly governments. I'm, I'm talking about a subversiveness that destroys the control that darkness has over people's lives. How do we, the church, have that kind of subversiveness? How do we demonstrate to the spiritual powers of darkness that they are defeated? You see, the church is not called to be subversive in the sense of rebellion against law. We are to be subversive in the sense that we're rebelling against the idea that power is to the powerful, that power is to the strong, that power is in the hands of those who rule and oppress. When the church lives in this gospel subversiveness, it threatens the spiritual forces of darkness by displaying how much, God, how much wiser God is than they are. 
How do we, the church, how do we display this multifaceted wisdom of God? How do we threaten the spiritual forces of darkness? Well, this brings us back to that greater point about the church under my third and main point, which is um, a transformed community. Verse 10 again. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now, to understand verse 10, it may help to understand that that verses 2 through 13 are really a digression. Paul started to say something in chapter 3, verse 1. He digresses because this thought enters his mind, and he wants to make sure we're clear on it. And then he jumps right back to where he was in 3.1, beginning in verse 14. Notice in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, dot, dot, dot. He he digresses to restate what he said about the church to tell us God's purposes. And then he resumes his thought in verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. For this reason, and then he, whoop, I'm I'm off onto something else. Oh, wait, for, for this reason, I'm back to where I was, verse 14. So he was about to introduce how he was going to pray for the church, but that causes him to digress to make the point that ultimately is centered in verse 10 that we've been looking at. And what is he praying? For this reason, verse 14, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. In other words, same thing you see him saying to the Galatians and elsewhere, that Christ would be formed in you. That Christ would be living and abiding in you, that you would be Jesus living through you in the world, church. That Christ would be formed in you. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, now starting in verse 18 and 19, you're going to have my translation. It's because I'm not satisfied with any of the English translations, mainly because there's one word in here that can be taken one of two ways, and all the English translations go one way, and Paul meant it the other. We know Paul meant it the other because of the context. We know Paul meant it the other because how else he says it in every other place. And how he uses this verb elsewhere as well, but that's another. Verse 18. So back at the middle of verse 17, I pray that you being rooted and established in love. Now here's my translation. May have the ability to make your own with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And so to learn the love of Christ. That love which surpasses understanding in order that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Paul is not praying that you somehow grasp or comprehend the love of Christ. No, he says you've already been established in the love. The gospel has established us in the love of Christ. Now, Paul wants us to make it our own. He wants us to take hold of it in the sense that we actually start living it. Paul's praying that we not only get that Jesus loves us, but that we get it so much that we start loving others like he loved us. That's what Paul's praying in this prayer. The church will make the wisdom of God and the folly of spiritual darkness known to the spiritual powers when we lay hold of the love of Christ and make it our own. When Christ is formed in us. When we love in a way that surpasses understanding. And in this fashion, God will according to verse 21, receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Now, that's an amazing statement. We're used to hearing it say, hell will receive glory in Christ. 
glory in Jesus Christ, glory in Christ Jesus. But glory in the church? How does God receive glory in the church? As we display the manifold wisdom of God to the spiritual rulers and authorities. That's how he does it. And how does he do that? When we begin to walk out the, the height and breadth and width and length and depth and all of that of the love of Christ. When we make it our own. That's how. Paul then describes what I'm going to call subversive activities that display God's wisdom. I'm going to highlight six. There, we could highlight several more. We could look at it more in detail. I'm going to just go through the rest of Ephesians and highlight six subversive activities that display God's wisdom. First, live up to this calling with all humility. Look with me at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bearing with one another in love. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. We've been called to something so much greater than what the world calls us to. And what we've been called to is a call by the gospel. It's a call to be like Christ. It's a call to an entirely different way of life. It's a call to take up our cross and follow him. Now, live a life worthy that matches up to that calling. There are plenty of causes which are calling your attention and for your attention. For, for some, it's wealth and power. For others, it's to prove that we don't need all that. But nothing calls you as high as the gospel calls you. The gospel calls you to make a statement to the very powers which keep the world enslaved, a statement that they are doomed. The foundation... The, the first requirement of displaying the wisdom of God is humility, and it requires bearing with one another in love. The, the first requirement of displaying the wisdom of God is humility, and it requires bearing with one another in love. Eugene Peterson wrote, Americans are good at forming clubs and gathering crowds, but clubs and crowds, even when, especially when, they are religious clubs and crowds, are not communities. Listen. The formation of community is the intricate, patient, painful work of the Holy Spirit. We cannot buy or make community. We can only offer ourselves to become community. This offering of ourselves requires humility and forbearance. You must bear with me. I must bear with you. We cannot dismiss one another. No matter what we might think, well, I don't need that. No, you are part of one another. We are to live. This is the second. So the, the, the first subversive activity, live up to this calling with all humility. Second, these are kind of broad headings. We are to live as if we are members of one another, or in other words, that we belong to one another. Verse 25, therefore, Chapter 4, verse 25 in Ephesians. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body, or literally we are all members of one another. Members of one another. We're, we're members of this greater whole than us, and we are mem therefore we are members of one another. This is not what God wants you to be. This is what he has made you to be. See, God isn't saying, I want you to, to be members of one another. No, God is saying, you are members of one another. Now live that way. That's what you are. 
That's what we are. That's what each local community that gathers under the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And that's what we all together are as well. Paul cites this as the basis for saying that we can no longer live in falsehood with each other, but are to speak truthfully to our neighbor. Why do we hide from each other? We don't feel safe, do we? We don't want them to know what we're truly like, because if they knew what I was truly like, then they wouldn't love me. But if we're members of one another, if we belong to each other, that changes things. We begin to care for others as though they share in who we are. We create an environment in which we both feel safe. It isn't you must speak truthfully in order that you can fix each other. No, maybe the idea that Paul has in mind is similar to what we read in James 5.16. Where he says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed or forgiven. This idea of healed, I think there is restoration. It doesn't say that between confession and this healing or forgiveness that there is a need for fixing or counsel. You know, confess your sins to each other, well, then offer some counsel about how they can change, and then pray for each other, and then you'll be forgiven. It doesn't say that at all, does it? There are certainly times for spiritual direction, but I think this is more about spiritual sharing in one life. Recently, after a Sunday morning service, a woman opened up to me as... I greeted her and confessed to me how she was convicted during the sermon over how she had acted towards someone that very morning prior to the service. She had reacted sinfully in anger. But she didn't need me to fix her. She didn't need counsel. In fact, she described quite clearly her own sin and what was wrong. She knew. didn't need any counsel from me. So here's how I responded. I said, I know. I did the same thing yesterday with Donna. I responded in anger and at an offense. I I didn't return mercy, but anger. May God give us both grace and forgiveness. So I, I, I think that what I said helped her, but I know that what she said helped me. We belong to one another. We need one another. Because, the third, third act of subversiveness or activity of subversiveness, because we are members of one another, the needs of others are to replace our selfish desires. We see this in verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. See, this, this changes the very purpose of why we work, why we labor. Not only are we to stop stealing, which includes, by the way, uh, fudging on our uh, expense reports at work or using our work time for surfing the Internet or answering personal emails. All that comes under stealing. Okay. But we are to labor that we might have something to share with those in need. You know, when we evaluate whether or not we want to take a promotion or whether we should go to school to get a better job, we're always asking, do I need more? Wrong question. problem is we live in a world that thrives on greed. Paul's saying that can't be what drives us anymore. What drives us is to share with those in need. 
this subversiveness is having the audacity to believe that God knows what we need and will take care of that as we seek to expand Eden to the ends of the earth, as we seek to spread justice and mercy, the justice and mercy of his kingdom, to do as he has done and spend our lives, but for the day of rest, cultivating a garden that meets the needs of others and not just our own needs. See, Adam wasn't given a hoe in the garden, so to speak. He wasn't told to cultivate the garden to meet his own needs. God had already provided a garden to meet his needs. Adam was told to subdue the earth so that others, so that garden could get bigger and bigger and bigger, so that others' needs would be met. They could get, that garden could grow and people could be added into the community of God. It wasn't about Adam making sure he had enough. That was already taken care of by God. <clears throat> Most people have as the primary motivation for labor the desire to get more. More house, more car, more video games, more. You fill in the blank with whatever it is you want more of. Or maybe to pay for the more we already have. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. The gospel calls us to the restored image of God, which is found in Christ, in which we subdue the earth, providing for others and allowing God to provide for us, in which we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, Knowing that God will make sure that we have what we need. So the, the third act, subversive activity is because we're members of one another, the needs of others replace selfish desires. The fourth subversive activity, reconciliation becomes central to who we are. Reconciliation becomes central to who we are. We are. We read in chapter 4, verse 31 and following. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander. Along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Apparently, taking up our cross and following Christ means that we too will bear the sins of others just as he bore our sins. We will bear them rather than retaliate against them. We will bear their offenses in order to forgive them. You see, when somebody sins against us, we have two choices. We can either heap that sin back on them in the form of doing wrong back, or we can forgive them, which means we don't heap it back on them, but we bear the pain. So either they're going to bear it, which is what our natural tendency is to do, make sure they know it. We're going to give them a piece of our mind or whatever it is we do, right? <clears throat> or I'm going to bear it. Forgiveness means I go to the cross and die and bear their sin, not them. Forgive them just as God and Christ forgave you. How did God and Christ forgive me? It took a cross. One writer said that anybody who says that forgiveness is easy has probably never forgiven anybody. There's nothing easy about forgiveness. Ask Jesus. He suffered to forgive us. And we will suffer to forgive. So the call to forgive isn't just a nice, quaint saying. It's a call to suffer. <clears throat> Mary White, in an article titled, Every Knee Shall Bow, writes, Forgiveness is never easy. It is difficult even with mild offenses. Forgiveness requires attitudes and behavior in direct opposition to our human inclinations. 
When we take up our cross and suffer injustice for the sake of a, a new kind of community, we threaten the principalities and powers of this age. When we forgive others and don't retaliate against them, the powers of this age don't know what to do with that. We can't control that person. Look, we, we caused an offense. We agitated this person to go after them. And look what they're doing back. They're loving. We're in trouble. We're in big trouble. Well, we could go on. There are other activities of subversiveness listed, that, how greed is improper amongst God's people, immorality Paul deals with in chapter 5. But I want to jump ahead to chapter 5, verses 21 through Chapter 6, verse 9, the fifth activity of subversiveness. Paul turns power structures on their head by speaking not first to husbands or parents or masters, but first to wives, to children, to slaves. And listen what he says to them. You see, it's, it's as if Paul is saying that power rests in the hands of the weak, not the powerful. The one who submits, not the one to whom they submit. Wives, submit to your husbands. First and foremost, not because of your husband, but out of reverence for Christ. See, you submitting to your husband is important because of who you submit to, reverence to Christ. It's about something so much bigger than your husband. Thank God, huh, wives? I mean, I, I, I'm sure glad my wife doesn't have to submit to me because of how great I am. That would be a really losing cause. <clears throat> She's more grateful than I am. Oh, and by the way, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's not husbands, make sure your wives submit. Nowhere in all of the Bible are husbands told to make sure their wives submit. Wives are told to submit to their husbands, respect their husbands, but, but husbands are told to love their wives, to be considerate. I know so many husbands get so caught up in trying to figure out how to make sure their wife submits. It's not your job. Nowhere are you told that that's your, it's not your job description. And by the way, wives, it's not your job to make sure your husband loves you and gives himself up for you. That works both ways. Children, your blessing is not ultimately dependent upon your parents, whether they bless you or don't bless you, whether Isaac gave it to Esau or Jacob or any other thing. Your blessing is not ultimately dependent upon your parents, but upon your obedience. Obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Because your blessing comes from someone way, way higher than them. And by the way, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your, your earthly masters, not because of who they are, but because you're doing the will of God. You're suffering and working to overcome evil with good. Now, that's my paraphrase, but I borrowed it from Romans, but it works there. And then, sixthly, the sixth subversive activity, if you will, <clears throat> Paul closes it out with the ultimate call to shove weakness in the face of power and say, I told you so, by calling us to stand strong in the weakest of all possible ways. By, by the world's criterion, anyway. In verse 10, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, which introduces a section that describes nothing but defensive armor except two things. The first offensive thing we're told about is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We remain strong by speaking the truth of the gospel, truth against the lies of the kingdom's kingdom of darkness. Truth is the greatest weapon. Truth is our offense. And I praise God for that. It is truly the greatest offense, but let's face it. Most of us, if you're like me, if you're, I mean, if I'm honest, I'll tell you that I, 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 can't, I put words, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, I put words in the category, you know, 
We, we all heard it as kids. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Words get in the category of names. You got sticks and stones, that's one category. Machetes, machine guns, and the like. And you have words and names and the pen and, you know, things like that. They would fall over here. Now, <clears throat> see, sticks and stones may break my bones. That's powerful. Oh, stand strong over here in this category, the weak one. The one that can never hurt me. That's where you stand strong. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But, but word, what, what good are words going to do? The wisdom of God is displayed in a cross. It's the only answer we need for that question. The wisdom of God, is, it's subversive to the way the world thinks. The second one we're called to stand strong in offensively. In verse 18, we're told that we do all of the above praying at all times. Prayer. Prayer's the answer to all the onslaught of the enemy. Yep. You see, some, and I don't blame them, some, I've been there, I've done it, so want to, to make this something that appears powerful that we've even turned prayer into yelling and shouting. Now, the louder I am in prayer, the more effective it must be, or some such thing. Because we can't get it out of our heads that we don't battle against flesh and blood. And we, we want something that's, that just feels stronger. And, and yet the Lord refuses to give it to us. He says, no, take, pick up a cross. That'll do just fine. Now, the good news is, by the way, God hears shouting prayer too because he really doesn't care how good the prayer is, whether it's good or poor or weak or whatever. It's not really what he's grading. So he'll hear those too because it's, it's about something else. <clears throat> what is prayer but our admission that we can do nothing and that we are utterly dependent upon God to do it all? Which, by the way, is probably why we don't pray like we ought because we're not ready to admit that far too often. Hallis B. puts it correctly when he says, Be not anxious because of your helplessness. Helplessness is the real secret and impelling power of prayer. <laughs> helplessness is the impelling power of prayer. Do you get the irony of that? But it's true. Karl Barth put it this way, To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. In other words, that simple act of saying, let's pray. That seemingly helpless act, that seemingly useless spouting of words to someone we can't see is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. It's subversive. That's not just Ephesians that speaks this way. We see it elsewhere. In Romans 12, Paul describes this same kind of shoving weakness in the face of the world's power strategy as subversiveness. He says, uh, and it's really chapter 12 and 13, but I'll just pick a few verses here beginning in verse 17 of Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Uh, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. There's power in giving drink and giving food. And then notice how he closes it out, the summary of it all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's it. 
We're subversive when we refuse to bow down and return evil for evil, but we return it with good. And the enemy says, uh-oh, we're doomed. They're getting it. The cross is transforming them. We're in trouble. Christ has given authority over the whole earth and or has been given authority over the whole earth and sits at God's right hand until his enemies are made his footstool. He is exercising that authority through his new community, the church. And as the church is a gospel-transformed community, as we live that out, it is also a subversive community against the power structures of this world. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul declares that the goal of the gospel preached and made known is that the church, the messianic community of Christ gathered from all nations, would walk out life together under a value system marked by the cross, so much so that we become a subversive agency displacing or displaying the, the, the power and wisdom of our God and King before the rulers and authorities over the spiritual forces of darkness that rule this fallen world. Become a subversive agency displaying the wisdom of God against that. Thanks be to God. See, discipleship isn't about replicating ourselves. It isn't about, it, it isn't about making more of me. It's, it's about replicating Jesus Christ. We only have the right to call someone to follow me as we follow Christ, insofar as we follow Christ. And we follow Christ by doing what he says. Or as the Great Commission puts it, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Or as I said earlier, the greatest challenge of discipleship is not gaining adherents who profess the name of Christ, but adherence to the person and teaching of Christ. Many will call Lord, Lord, but not do what he says. If we're going to be a subversive agency in the world to the power structures of this age, we're going to have to take Christ seriously. We're going to have to do what he says. And then we will put the manifold wisdom of God on display before all the heavenly hosts. And God will receive glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all ages forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father.